0: It was a chilly winter evening on the 20th of February, 1838, as the Allsop family were just getting ready for bed. The elderly Mr. and Mrs. Allsop lived with their three daughters on Bearbinder Lane in Old Ford, a small village clustered around the River Lee on the northeast outskirts of London. A man of above average means, Mr. Allsop’s family cottage was larger than most in Old Ford protected by a high wall and front gate, which was locked every night. Burglaries were not uncommon in the area, and footpads, highway robbers that operated on foot, sometimes lurked on the quiet country lanes after dark, ready to pounce on unsuspecting travellers. With the notion of a professional police force only a fledgling idea at the time, country dwellers tended to stay at home after nightfall, Nights in the main were reassuringly quiet, save for the occasional hooting of an owl or scream of a fox. So it startled the whole family when the bell on their front gate began to jangle violently, just after a quarter to nine. Inside the cottage, 18-year-old Jane Allsop looked uncertainly at her parents and two sisters. Sarah, the oldest, busy looking after their parents, insisted that Jane take care of it. Jane waited for a moment in the ensuing silence, hoping the caller might leave them alone. Then the bell rang out again, even louder this time. Throwing a shawl around her shoulders, Jane unbolted the door and stepped out into the misty night. From there, she could just make out the figure of a tall man, standing outside their front gate in the lane As she drew closer to him, she could see he was enveloped in a large cloak and wearing what appeared to be some sort of headgear. The man was exceptionally tall. Jane looked back to the cottage and then back to the man. Can I help you? she asked. I'm a policeman, said the man tersely. For God's sake, bring me a light. We've caught spring Jack here in the lane. The name startled her. She knew of it well, but had thought it was merely an urban myth, or those tales of a ghostly figure said to be able to leap ten feet in the air that was supposedly terrorising Londoners. Just wait a moment, said Jane, feeling a shiver of fear as she hurried back to the cottage. With trembling fingers, she gathered a candle holder and candle, and raced back outside, where the man was still waiting for her by the gate. Hurriedly, Jane made her way down to the strangely tall man, and handed over the candle, straining her neck for a glimpse of the fabled Jack. But the man didn't run off to confront him as she expected. Instead, in one swirling motion, he swept off his cloak, and held the lighted candle in front of his chest. Jane let out a piercing involuntary scream at the sight now revealed in the candle's flickering glow. The man's face was hideous, with eyes that seemed to blaze like burning coal. He wasn't wearing a hat as she first thought, but some kind of peculiar helmet, while underneath his cloak, she saw then that his body seemed to be encased in a strange, tightly fitting white oilskin garment, like a sailor might wear, or slaughterhouse worker, perhaps. As Jane put it in her terrifying account that she gave to the local council the following day, the man then rushed toward her, spewing blue and white fire from his mouth right into her face. Before she could run away, he seized her by her dress and neck, and pinned her head under one arm. Then he began viciously tearing at her clothes and hair. Shrieking repeatedly in terror, Jane struggled in his grasp, and somehow she fought him off, managing to pull away. In that moment, she saw with unbridled horror that where the man's fingers should have been were long, sharp, metal talons instead. The man, or whatever he was, attempted to grab Jane again, tearing at the skirts of her dress as she bolted towards the front door. Just as she reached for the handle, the fiend caught up with her again on the doorstep as she screamed for help. The man clawed at her again, pulling out several clumps of hair as he did so. Jane's two sisters, hearing her screams, rushed to the door to help but Mary, the youngest, was too overcome with fright to do anything. Finally, Sarah, Jane's older sister, managed to drag her out of her assailant's clutches and back inside the cottage. Slamming the door shut behind them, the sisters tumbled to the floor in a blind panic, while the attacker continued to beat on the door, so much so that they thought he might break it down. As Jane and Sarah screamed for the man to go away, the elderly Mr and Mrs Allsop went upstairs to try and see what was happening. Seeing the terrifying look of the man from above, the pair wrenched open an upstairs window and shouted into the night for someone to help them. A quarter of a mile away at the John Bull Public House, the Allsop's cries were heard by a group of men who set off immediately to investigate but by the time they made it to the Orsop's cottage, the attack appeared to be over. Inside the house, they found a deeply distressed Jane being tended to by her family. Her dress was torn to ribbons, her face, neck and shoulders covered in deep scratches, and several large clumps of hair had been pulled from her head. spring Jack, it seemed, was not an urban myth, after all. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard MacLean Smith. Most countries and cultures have their own version of a bogeyman, and pre-Victorian Britain was no different. Many of them, given the epithet of Jack, in rural British folklore, Jack in the Green, as it was sometimes called, was just one name for the nature-sprites and mischief-makers known as Puck or the Green Man. In the Welsh borders, Jack O'Kent was a legendary figure who'd supposedly once made a pact with the devil. At the turn of the 19th century in Britain, the Industrial Revolution and a new era of technological development was in full swing. As people migrated from the country into the cities, these migrants brought their rural folklore and stories of the supernatural with them. As people attempted to make sense of the brave new world emerging around them, they casually populated it with strange phenomena and sinister figures. Around 1803 and 1804, stories started to circulate of ghosts haunting the lonely lanes, in the countryside around London. These pale figures, often clad in what appeared to be a white shroud, were said to stalk and attack lone pedestrians, especially women, after dark. In Hammersmith, on the western fringes of London, a ghostly figure was said to have assaulted a woman while she was walking past the chapel one winter evening. According to contemporary accounts, The spectre grasped the woman in its arms, causing her to faint. The woman was said to have died from shock two days later. Two men were walking through that chapel's churchyard sometime around 9pm when something stood up from behind a gravestone and grabbed one of them by the throat. The man was violently turned around as if to face it, only to find that there was nothing there. Yet when he struck out with his fist, he felt something in the emptiness in front of him. It was like punching through the material of a large coat, he said. It was all enough to convince one man, named Francis Smith, to begin nightly patrols in the area, armed with a gun. Late one night in January 1804, Smith was pacing the streets alone, when he suddenly spotted a ghostly white figure approaching. Damn you, who are you? And what are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you, he said, then took aim and fired. The white figure collapsed instantly to the ground. Moments later, a deeply distraught smith found himself standing over the body of Thomas Millwood, a bricklayer, walking home from work in his traditional white clothes. Francis Smith was initially sentenced to death for the crime, but later had his sentence reduced to a year's hard labour, on account of the fact that Smith was thought to have truly believed that Millwood was a ghost, and therefore less culpable for his murder. A man did actually come forward, admitting to being the so-called Hammersmith ghost. Shoemaker John Graham, claimed that he began parading round the streets in a white sheet to try and scare an apprentice of his. However, sightings of a ghostly white figure stalking the streets of London persisted for the next 20 years. Between 1824 and 1826 In the countryside surrounding London and Hampshire in South England, something else appeared to have emerged. Known as the Southampton Ghost, since the story originated in Southampton on the English South Coast, it was said to be skeletally thin and over 10 feet tall. Newspaper reports of this character mentioned that the spectre was also able to jump very high, An account in the Northampton Mercury, on the 21st of January, 1826, described that a person had been spotted nightly in Southampton, wearing some kind of mask. The ghoulish figure had been fired at, without effect, due to apparently being enveloped in steel armour. They were also said to wear a pair of spring boots, which enabled them to vault over a ten feet wall. One witness apparently gave chase, and though they couldn't quite catch them, got close enough to report the spectre was a tall man wearing a dark coat with shiny metal buttons. In early September 1837, local newspapers in the counties surrounding London began to report a series of attacks perpetrated by what was variously described as an imp a bear, a devil, a ghostly white bull, or simply a ghost clothed in white, sometimes wearing chainmail or armour. Over the next two months, the mysterious figure was said to have made attacks in a total of two dozen villages to the south and the west of London, most of them on women, and the spectre's behaviour had become more violent. On the 11th of October, Polly Adams, a tavern worker from Blackheath, was attacked by a so-called devil-like gentleman at Blackheath Fair, who tore off her blouse and scratched her stomach with his claws, before escaping by leaping over a fence. A little later that month, a domestic servant was set upon, while walking across Clapham Common. The assailant ripped at her clothes, and touched her body with cold claws, she recounted. Some local residents had rushed to her aid, but the attacker was nowhere to be found. The following day, occupants of a carriage witnessed a man jumping into the road in front of them, causing their driver to swerve, and the carriage to crash. The man jumped away over a nine-foot wall, emitting a maniacal laughter as he went. One foggy night, during the last week of December in 1837, a carpenter named Mr Jones was walking home along Cutthroat Lane in Isleworth, West London, when he claimed to have been attacked by a figure dressed in armour and wearing red shoes. Jones said that when he fought back, two more ghosts, as he called them, joined in the attack, leaving him badly beaten, and his clothes torn to shreds. The gothic atmosphere of London's streets, bathed in swirling fog and illuminated by pockets of light from gas lamps, which only served to emphasize the darkness around them, was the perfect place for the attacks, and fertile ground for the fearful imaginings of the public. When the London newspapers began to print reports of what was initially called the Suburban Ghost, they were first sceptical, describing the sightings condescendingly as the sort of rumours that inevitably circulate among servant girls. But after the ghost was said to have made an appearance at Hampton Court Palace, former home of King Henry VIII, the press came up with another name for it. spring Jack. However, both local newspaper reporters and the police were struggling to find hard evidence that might lead to a genuine suspect or an arrest. But as many newspapers at the time conceded, something was causing the panic. Several favoured the rumour that a gang of aristocrats were carrying out the attacks for a bet. This rumour seemed to be substantiated when an anonymous resident of Peckham, in South London, wrote to the Lord Mayor of London, stating that a man from the higher ranks of life, as he put it, laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, that he would visit many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil. The man continued, The wager has been accepted, and the unmanly villain has already succeeded in depriving seven women of their senses. The Lord Mayor was unconvinced, saying that the letter-writer had merely been frightened by burglars and wanted retribution. Several vigilante groups disagreed, however, including one led by none other than the then 70-year-old Duke of Wellington. Despite having once led an army that defeated Napoleon, he failed to accost the culprits. There's no record as to whether the aristocratic wager was won, or even existed for that matter. Nonetheless, the attacks continued unabated in and around London throughout early 1838 and on into February, the same month that 18-year-old Jane Olsup was attacked outside her home in Old Ford. About the same time, a mile to the west, a man in a cloak, wrapped on the door of a house in Turner Street and asked to speak to the owner, Mr Ashworth. But before the servant boy who answered the door could fetch his master, the caller threw back his cloak and revealed a sinister visage and bizarre costume underneath. The frightened boy screamed so loudly that the cloaked figure ran off, but not before the boy noticed one intriguing detail on the cloak. An elaborate letter W embroidered on its hem. For some, this W was a vital clue, which sparked an entirely new rumour centred around an Irish nobleman known as the Marquis of Waterford, or alternatively, as the Mad Marquis. Henry Beresford was never supposed to have been the third Marquis of Waterford. Born in 1811, he was a second son and should have slowly marched down the family order of succession, as his older brother George married and had heirs of his own. But in 1824, George contracted an inflammation of the bowels, and died two days later, at the age of fourteen. Two years after that, Henry's father died, and so Henry inherited the family title and all its money at the age of just fifteen His first few years as a marquis were spent in private school. Then came the revelry. Young, and most likely bereft at the death of his older brother, followed soon after by his father, at a time of fairly strict gender roles, he was without any male parental guidance, and mind-blowingly wealthy. The debauchery started almost immediately. After somewhat less than gentlemanly behaviour, on a trip to the USA with supposedly well-to-do friends, the Marquess of Waterford began to make headlines back in England for all the wrong reasons. In the late 1830s, his name came to be synonymous with brutal jokes, vandalism and misogyny. This was a man of whom it was said would do anything for a bet. In 1836, on one occasion, the Marquis of Waterford smashed several windows. On another, he offered strangers money to fight him. And another time, got into an altercation with a man on horseback when he demanded that he ignore the gatekeeper on a toll road and pay him the money instead. But that was just a warm-up. In April the following year, the Marquis went to the races with a group of friends, after which began another night of debauchery. They smashed the shutters of a tollgate, stole some red paint, then walked to a nearby pub called the Old White Swan. The Marquis was hoisted onto the shoulders of his friends, where he proceeded to paint the swan red. The group continued, overturning caravans, throwing signs into a canal smashing lamps and wrenching off door-knockers, all while spreading red paint in their wake, an escapade that is thought to be the origin of the phrase to paint the town red. The group were arrested, and subsequently appeared before the local magistrate wearing bearskin coats and large cravats. Henry Beresford, the Marquis of Waterford, is known to have been present in the London area by the time the first apparent attacks by Springheel Jack took place? Had he been spending his leisure time developing and indulging in bizarre and elaborate pranks? Was he aided and abetted by friends, constructing some sort of apparatus that resulted in Spring-Heeled boots? Did he practice fire-breathing techniques in order to increase the unnatural appearance of his character? It's quite possible that he wasn't the only member of so-called high society acting up, many members of the aristocracy had the time, resources, and inclination to create convincing ghostly appearances. Then used their money and influence to avoid prosecution. Within just a few days of the attack on Jane Alsop, toward the end of February in 1837, Springheeled Jack struck again. 18-year-old Lucy Scales and her sister were waylaid as they returned home from a visit to their brother, one of many butchers that operated in the Limehouse area of London's Docklands. In the freezing, misty night, with little light to guide their way, the pair turned into the narrow, twisting passage of Green Dragon Alley. There, they spotted a thin, cloaked stranger standing a little further down the alleyway. As the young women later recalled, when they approached the man, he suddenly threw open his cloak, displaying a strange lamp thing strapped to his chest, and blew flames from his mouth straight into Lucy's face. Screaming in horror, Lucy fell to the ground, temporarily blinded and in severe pain. She later described her attacker as tall and thin, and looking gentlemanly. She said also that he wore a large cloak, and what she described as some kind of headdress, much like a bonnet. There were no other witnesses to the assault. After Lucy Scales's apparent attack, she was examined by a surgeon. Her report, made no mention of her having sustained any burns. When Jane Alsop was examined after the incident in Old Ford, the report compiled by the police surgeon who conducted it also failed to mention anything about burns. So where did the alleged flames come from? Fire breathing involves spitting a jet of flammable liquid into a blazing torch. For performers using it in the carnival and circus trade, It's typically the most dangerous part of their act. Things can go badly wrong, especially if the feat is performed outdoors. In his autobiography, Memoirs of a Sword Swallower, the 20th century carnival artist Dan Mannix describes how one night, early on in his career, he watched as America's leading fire eater at the time prepared for his act. Holding a flaming torch well away from his body, the performer took a mouthful from a glass of petrol and stood waiting for the breeze to die down. Then a small trickle of petrol accidentally leaked from the corner of the performer's mouth and an errant spark from the torch, blown by a sudden gust of wind, leapt through the air, igniting the petrol. There was a blinding flash of light, as Flamo the Great as he was known, erupted in flames, his whole face on fire. Had the sinister Spring-Heeled Jack, whoever or whatever they were, employed something similar? Either way, there are no substantiated reports of him breathing fire after the attack on Lucy Scales. By this time, all of London was aware of Spring-Heeled Jack, and imitators seemed to be cropping up in his wake in early eighteen thirty eight, a smartly dressed man called in at the White Line Pub in Veer Street and coolly told the landlady that he was Springheel Jack. He pulled out a club and aimed a vicious strike at the woman, who managed to dodge the blow just in time. In March, two tall men in black cloaks, their faces smeared with ochre, terrified a boy in Westmoreland Meuse while a youth named Daniel Granville was caught in Kentish town wearing a mask with blue glazed paper at the mouth to simulate Jack's fiery breath. Meanwhile, a man named James Painter was fined £4 for his exploits in the Kilburn area, where he assaulted women while wearing a fake beard and a sheet. All in all, the many sightings of supposed ghosts and tall men lurking in alleyways, though terrifying for the public, were rarely taken seriously by city officials. But the assault on Jane Alsop was different, partly because the Allsops were a family of significant means, but also because of the testimony that Jane made at the Lambeth Street police office the day after the attack along with a surgeon's description of her injuries, which was printed in many London newspapers. On the 2nd of March 1838, the national newspaper The Times ran the story under the heading The Late Outrage at Old Ford. It prompted two investigations, the first conducted by the recently established London Metropolitan Police, the second was overseen by the much-revered officer James Lee. Lee was employed by the Lambeth Street Police Office to investigate cases that came before the local court. Reputed to have been the best detective in London during the 1830s, Lee had a decade of investigative experience. He was perhaps best known for the part he played in solving one of the most sensational British crimes of the early 1800s, the murder at the Red Barn. Though many doubted Jane Alsop's account of her terrifying encounter, John Lee had no doubt she was telling the truth. In fact, the same day that Jane, along with her father and older sister, gave evidence of the attack to the Lambeth Street Magistrate, Lee was already beginning his investigation. He was determined to catch the attacker. But can you even catch a ghost? You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 5, Jumping Jacks, Part 1 of 2. The second and final part will be released next Friday, September 15th. This episode was written by Diane Hope and produced by Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean-Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.